1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 to 17 is our text this evening, or rather 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 through 17. Now Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria, and Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria to the rulers of Jezreel, the elders and the guardians of the children of Ahab, saying, Now when this letter comes to you, since your master's sons are with you, as well as the chariots and horses and a fortified city and the weapons, Select the best and fittest of your master's sons and set him on his father's throne and fight for your master's house. But they feared greatly and said, Behold, the two kings did not stand before him. How then can we stand? And the one who was over the household and he who was over the city, the elders and the guardians of the children sent word to Jehu saying, We are your servants. All that you say to us, we will do. We will not make any man king. Do what is good in your sight. Then he wrote a letter and, uh, to them a second time, saying, If you are on my side, and you will listen to my voice, take the heads of the men, your master's sons, and come to me at Jezreel tomorrow about this time. Now the king's sons, 70 persons were with the great men of the city who were rearing them. When the letter came to them, they took the king's sons and slaughtered them, 70 persons, and put their heads in baskets and sent them to him at Jezreel. When messenger came to him and told him, saying, They have brought the heads of the king's sons, he said. Put them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until morning. Now in the morning he went out and stood and said to all the people, You are innocent. Behold, I conspired against my master and killed him. But who killed all these? Know then that there shall fall to earth Nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord has done what he spoke through his servant Elijah. So Jehu killed all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel, and all his great men and his acquaintances and his priests, until he left them without a survivor. Then he arose and departed and went to Samaria. On the way, while he was at beth of the shepherds, Jehu met the relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah. And he said, Who are you? And they said, We are relatives of Ahaziah, and we have come down to greet the sons of the kings, a king and the sons of the queen mother. He said, Take them alive. So they took them alive and killed them at the pit of beth Ekad. Forty-two men. And he left none of them. Now when he had departed from there, he met Jehonadab, (coughs) the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. 
And he greeted him and said, Is your heart right as my heart is with your heart? And Jehonadab said, uh, answered, It is. Jehu said, If it is, give me your hand. And he gave him his hand, and he took him up into the chariot. He said, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So he made him ride in his chariot. When he came to Samaria, he killed all who remained to Ahab in Samaria until he had destroyed him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. The reading of God's holy word be seated as we pray. Your word, O Lord, is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We pray, O Lord, that you you would speak through the Spirit of Christ, for your servants listen. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let me remind you briefly of what took place in chapter 9. Elisha has sent one of the sons of the prophets to take care of the last of Elijah's unfinished business to anoint Jehu, the commander of Israel's army, as successor to Joram on the throne of the northern kingdom. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. Jehu is to be Jehovah's instrument of vengeance on the house of Ahab for the evil that it's done in killing God's true prophets and in proliferating Baal worship in the northern kingdom. But vengeance belongs to the Lord. That's what Jehovah says here in chapter 9 and verse 7, shall strike the house of Ahab, your, your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off Ahab from Ahab, every male person, both bond and free. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. Jehu wasted no time uh, in fulfilling his role as God's uh, uh, instrument of, of vengeance. He immediately assassinates Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, and slayed Jezebel. Ahab's wife, chapter 9, verses 14 to 37, all of whom were complicit in Israel's sin. In chapter uh, 9, the judgment has fallen on individuals. Here in chapter 10, it falls on the whole of Ahab's household, and it's a violent purge. This is the kind of passage 
uh, often viewed as typical of the Old Testament with a violent, bloodthirsty God who's contrasted with the gentle Jesus of the New Testament. Two things need to be remembered in this regard. The first is that uh, most of the teaching on judgment in the New Testament comes from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. For example, Matthew 13, 40-42, Luke 11, 29-32, and Luke 16, 19-31. We won't take time to read these, but it's clear from such passages and others uh, that Jesus taught that God's judgment is to be reckoned with. The second thing is that Ahab's house has been repeatedly warned by Elijah and Elisha, and that God has uh, continuously, in the, in the, during the ministries of both of these prophets, sent overtures of grace to them, calling them to repentance, but they've not heeded these overtures, they've not heeded these calls to repentance. As long as that godless family remained, Jehu was right. There could be no peace. What peace? He said to Joram as he came out to meet him. As long uh, as your mother uh, remains, as long as the harlotries, harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts are so many. In our text, Jehu sets about the rest of his task as God's instrument of vengeance with a great zeal. Seventy sons of Ahab and all of Ahab's loyalists are targeted. Decisive action will be taken uh, later also uh, against Baal worshippers and the priests of Baal will be destroyed. The purge is to be thorough like the slayings of Joram, Ahaziah, and Jezebel, and it's deadly like those personal slayings. Our text describes three bloody slaughters, all in accordance with Jehovah's word. The emphasis in verses 1 through 17 falls on verses 10, Jehu's theology concerning the word of the Lord, and 17, the writer's theological comment about the word of the Lord. Everything that takes place, notwithstanding the arguments of some against it, is in accordance with the word of the Lord. We'll look first at the slaughter in Jezreel, verses 1 to 11. Secondly, the slaughter of Ahaziah's relative, verses 12 to 14. And third, the slaughter in Samaria, verses 15 to 17. First then, the slaughter in Jezreel, in verses 1 to 11. Our text begins by telling us that Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria, and Jehub sent a first batch of letters 
to Ahab's supporters there, to the rulers of Jezreel, the, the elders, the guardians of Ahab's children. Some interpreters wonder what the leaders of Jezreel would have been doing in Samaria. And so they think there, there must be some kind of textual problem. Uh, but they may have, well, fled to Samaria in fear after they saw what Jehu did in Jezreel. He tells the Ahab supporters that given all their military resources, verse 2, they should select the fittest of Ahab's son to set him on the throne and fight for their master's house, verse 3. But they were totally intimidated, intimidated verse 4 says. Uh, they sent back to, uh, word back to uh, Jehu of their complete capitulation to him in verse 5. Jehu's second letter informed them what was necessary if they, uh, if they were going to be seen as, as compliant to what he was requiring of them. If you are on my side and will listen to my voice, that is, if you're as subservient as you claim to be, you'll see to it that, that the heads of your master's sons arrive in Jezreel tomorrow. So to demonstrate their full submission, they promptly slaughtered Ahab's 70 sons, verse 7, took off their heads and sent them to Jezreel. The king's messenger comes to him in a matter-of-fact way, almost seems, makes it seem like a commonplace occurrence as though uh, he were reporting an Amazon delivery. Sir, the heads that you ordered are here. Jehu instructs the messenger to, to arrange them in two heaps at the city gate as an overnight display, using, using them as visual aids for his speech the, the next morning. Verse 9, you are innocent, Behold, I conspired against my master and killed him, but who killed all these? To paraphrase, Jehu seems to be saying, You killed no one. Yes, I killed King Joram, but these two heaps of head, heads at the gate aren't my work. I didn't do this. They arrived in the post. Someone else did this. There's widespread support for me. These are royal heads. I have the loyalty of Israel's leadership at the highest level. His speech supports his theology in verse 10. Know then that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of Jehovah which Jehovah spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord has done what he spoke through his servant Elijah. As the, uh, the way uh, these sections are, are structured here in, in 1 Kings, there's always a summary note. And uh, the summary note of the first section here is in verse 11. And the narrator reports there that Jehu brought to a complete end 
uh, Ahab's house in Jezreel, his nobles, his close acquaintances, and his religious functionaries, no survivors whatsoever left in Jezreel. So much then for the slaughter in Jezreel. Secondly, the slaughter of Ahaziah's relatives in verses 12 to 14. Now the account of Jehu's encounter with Ahaziah's kinsmen in 12 to 14 raises numerous questions. We don't know, for example, where Beth Echad of the shepherds was located. It had to be somewhere between Jezreel and Samaria. And if Ahaziah's kinsmen had gone by the way of Samaria, surely they knew of the slaughter of Ahab's 70 sons. Why then were they continuing north to Jezreel, where Jehu was? Uh, but we don't know. We don't know that they even came by the way of Samaria. In fact, you know, their answer in verse 13 seems to indicate that they had no awareness at all of, of any kind of threat against the king's sons. We have come, they said, to greet the king's sons. We may also wonder why they weren't at least a little wary when they met Jehu, given his propensity for violence. Uh, But why would they? They likely wouldn't even have recognized Jehu. Who knows uh, whether they had even seen this man before. And finally, uh, one may wonder why Jehu slaughtered the king of Judah's relatives, Ahaziah's relatives, when they weren't a part uh, of Israel. They weren't officially a part of Ahab's house. But it must be remembered that the houses of Israel and Judah were intertwined. Uh, they had intermarried, 2 Kings 8, verse 18, 26, and 27, and that as a consequence of uh, Judah's, uh, of that Judah's kings, Joram and uh, his son Ahaziah walked in the ways of the house of Ahab, and therefore Jehu determined to be thorough uh, in carrying out the word of Jehovah, concerning the house of Ahab, uh, and eliminated all uh, the pro-Ahab contingent in uh, Judah as well. It's a brief section uh, here in uh, in this section concerning the slaughter of of Ahab's relatives. It brings us, uh, remains for us to consider the slaughter of in Samaria, in verses 15 to 17. Jehu also meets Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, on the way to Samaria. Uh, Jehonadab is, is apparently on his way up to meet Jehu, verse 15, and he responds positively uh, to Jehu's inquiry. Uh, is your heart right as my heart is with your heart? Answer, and and uh, 
Jehonadab simply answers, it is. Jehu uh, welcomes him up into his chariot. Now, we don't quite know what to make of Jehonadab. His descendants appear in Jeremiah 35. Uh, if you are reading through McShane's calendar and you're up to date, you would have read that just recently. And they tell Jer- uh, Jeremiah that uh, Jonadab, an alternate reading of Jehonadab, the uh, alternate spelling of Jehonadab, uh, that Jonadab, their ancestor, commanded them never to drink wine, build houses, sow seed, or plant vineyards, but always to live in tents. Jeremiah 35, 6-7. It's kind of an odd passage in Jeremiah, so if you have read that recently, you wouldn't have easily forgotten it, I think. Now, some infer from this that uh, this group rented some kind of a fanatical support for the old ways of, of Israel, uh, a return to a, an idealized nomadism. Others think that Jehu may have had his eyes on Jehonadab's military support because Rechab is from the same Hebrew root as Rechab, meaning chariot, and, and is believed by some uh, to refer to a metal workers group that produced chariots. Whatever we think of the Rechabites, uh, Jehonadab was apparently loyal to Jehovah, or Jehu would not have professed his zeal for Jehovah, as we're told that he did here in verse 16. And it's likely that, he was, that Jehu was wanting to secure his support of the, the conservative elements uh, in Israel. Uh, verse 17 tells us that he goes on, uh, as, as he goes on, as he, as he arrives in uh, Samaria, that he killed all who remained to Ahab in Samaria until he had destroyed them. That's what happened. Three bloody slaughters. A lot of carnage in the wake of Jehu carrying out his role as Jehovah's instrument of vengeance against the house of Ahab and all of his supporters. And the point of the text is that this is all in fulfillment of Jehovah's word. Jehu had said as much when he delivered his speech between these two stacks of heads at the gate of Jezreel, verse 10, Know then that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab, for the Lord has done what he spoke through his servant Elijah. That's Jehu's theology. We may be tempted to take issue with the way Jehu applied his theology in all the slaughtering he did. 
which some interpreters do, claiming that God had said nothing to Jehu about nobles, close acquaintances, or priests, in verse 11, for example, uh, that this was overreach on Jehu's part. But the inspired writer will not allow us to do this. He'll not allow us to think like this. He'll not allow us to question Jehu's theology or his application of that theology. Because he himself so much as puts his stamp of approval on it in the summary statement of verse 17, where he writes that all of this was according to the word of Jehovah that he spoke to Elijah. Furthermore, when all is said and done, after Jehu destroyed uh, the Baal worshippers, and uh, eradicated Baal out of Israel. Verses 18 to 28, Jehovah says to him in verse 29, Because you have done well in executing what's right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. So we're not allowed to question Jehu's theology, and we're not allowed to question his application of theology. And if we can't question Jehu's theology or his application of that theology, we may be tempted to question Jehovah himself, which again, some brave souls venture to do. Why does he work like this? They ask. Why does God employ the violence of men to carry out his will? Couldn't he operate in a more sterilized way? Well, perhaps he could. But we must remember two points. First, the Bible frequently shows God working, we might say, indirectly through human instruments. And unlike surgeons, God has no sterilized instruments. All of them are flawed. Which, as we'll see when we consider the rest of chapter 10, and in particular verses 29 and 31, Jehu was certainly one of those flawed instruments. So God uses wicked and flawed people to carry out his purpose. God used the wicked nations of Assyria to to judge his covenant people in Israel. He used the wicked nation of Babylon to judge his covenant people in Judah. Nations that carried out cruel practices in warfare, far and above what Jehu has done here, Second, this is a situation involving the judgment of God. And it's very difficult to make judgment pleasant. God uses wicked nations like Assyria 
He uses wicked nations like Babylon in warfare against his covenant people. God used wicked men to put his only begotten son to death in a cruel way, the cruelest of deaths, on a cross. Peter said to the men of Israel, Acts 2, 23, this man you nailed to a cross by the hand of godless men and put him to death. We may rightly question the Jews' wicked motives for for doing so, but we can't question God's employment of violent men to accomplish his will because Peter also says in that sermon on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, verses 23 and 24, he also makes clear that Jesus, the Nazarene, was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Some are even so bold as to argue that Christ's death as an atonement for sin wasn't necessary uh, to save his elect people. That God doesn't operate like this. That the very idea that without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins, Hebrews 9.22 is a barbaric idea and is inconsistent with the very character of God. Just talking to someone, uh, one of our members this morning about this in a book uh, that she's reading. Uh, This is is being taught today in so-called progressive Christianity. This can't be God. They say. It's all too unsanitary for them. But we who know God and his righteous judgments know that as painful as it was for God the Father, And as painful as it was for God the Son, and as painful uh, as it is for those who love their Savior, sin had to be atoned for. Because Hebrews 9.22 is the inspired word of God. And it says, without shedding of blood, There is no forgiveness of sin. The Father had determined that Jesus, his only begotten Son, must be displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith in order to demonstrate his righteousness, Romans 3.25, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith 
in Jesus, Romans 3, verse 26. Tempted though one may be to question Jehovah's ways, Paul's earlier statement in Romans 3 and verse 4 stands firm. Let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Amen. O holy, righteous God of all judgment, God of justice, the one who who is both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ, forgive us when we have ever questioned your ways, when we have thought them Uh, as they are revealed and clearly revealed in your holy word to be consistent with your character. Forgive us, O Lord, uh, when we are squeamish about bloodshed. Teach us, O God, uh, to reckon with the hard things of Scripture and not to set them aside because they're offensive to our sensibilities. Teach us, O Lord, to believe what you've written. To believe what the Bible says, not what we think the Bible ought to say. To believe of your holy character and your righteous character and your just character, wise character, all that you have revealed about yourself in the Holy Scriptures. To believe these things with all of our heart. And to look to you, O Lord, as our Savior, who is righteous and just uh, and who is loving and lovely all at the same time. That none of these things represent a conflict in your character. Teach us, O Lord, as we study your word to understand all of these things and to be those who who walk in your ways. O Jehovah, our great God, through Jesus we pray. Amen.